We're going to be looking at uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 28 this morning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 28. This is a... Uh, a reading, a passage that is known uh, as the image of God, or as they would say, theologians have called for many years the Imago Day. And I want us to look at this, uh, not too many verses this morning, because uh, these few verses uh, preach for themselves and are so robust and so powerful. So I want us to uh, spend uh, the remainder of our morning here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 28. Hear the word of God. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the word of God. Let's pray. God, we have sung, we have prayed, and now we come to the point in our service where you will preach your word to us. Lord, I need it, we need it. We come into this place this morning as broken people in need of healing. And so, Lord, I pray that your word would do its good work on us this morning. You are the great physician. And for those that are here this morning that are weary, those that are heavy laden, I pray that it would be your word and your word alone that would heal us, would bind us, it would make us afresh and would set us free. And it's in the name of Christ I pray. Amen. I once uh, was part of a community group, a small group, and there was uh, one couple in particular that we were trying to get into our community group, and the only problem is uh, only uh, the husband would come. And we would ask every week, why doesn't your wife come? And he'd make excuses while she was busy or she had too much to do or she had another uh, engagement. And week after week after week that this small group met, we tried to get both the husband and the wife there, but the wife refused to come. Come. And finally, I pulled the husband aside. I said, what, I mean, it's, we're going on eight weeks now. It can't surely be that busy every single week. And, she, and he said, you know what, Rob? He said, she hates groups like these. I said, really? I said, we get together, we pray, we read the Bible, we eat good food, we hang out together. It's, it's time of good fellowship. It's a time of good community. And she, she, he said to me, she hates it because every group she's ever been a part of always begins like this. Tell us who you are and tell us what you do. 
And it petrified her. And what's interesting is that that one thought of what a small group looked like or what some group that she was an outsider coming in looked like absolutely paralyzed her. And what's interesting is I talk to so many people and they have that same fear. And it's maybe not the fear of entering a small group or a community group, but it's being asked that question. Who are you and what do you do? Because when I began to press a little further and began to understand a little bit more about uh, the, the wife of this husband, the real fear started to come out. And the real fear was this. I never feel like my story measures up. I never know if what I say in that small group will even be, will even matter or be as significant as the other people in that small group. And we've all been part of those small groups, right? You ask a person who they are, where they're from, and you have some people that simply announce their name. You have some people that announce their career. You have some people that'll wax eloquent for 20 minutes about their entire lives, life history, right? We've all been part of those groups before. And what's interesting is when any time you ask somebody who you are and what they do, you can get a myriad of answers and, and, and responses. But the reality this morning, those questions, those two questions, who are you and what do you do, can be some of the most paralyzing questions a person could ever hear. And the reason is, in our society, what, one of the things that we suffer from the most it's just an un, unknown of who we are, the unknown of our identity. We can't really articulate who we are. There are some people that actually wake up in the morning and they go, I've forgotten who I've become. I, I, I've lived so long, I've done so much, uh, I've done a lot of good, but I've also done a lot of bad, I've made my mistakes, I've messed up, I've fallen flat on my face and picked myself up again, and, and all of a sudden I wake up in the morning and I go, I, I, I don't know who I am and I don't know what I've become. Actually, I was talking to a counselor one time and he says, here are the three most common people that I talk to and what I hear in the counseling room. It's the addict who says, I don't know how I got this way. It's the executive who works 15 hours a day and says, I've been working so hard for so long, I, I don't even know why I work anymore. It's the woman who's obsessed with how she looks and says, I want to lock myself up because I just don't look pretty. I don't look comfortable or feel comfortable in my own skin. The problem is we don't know who we are and we don't know what we've become and there's a lot of confusion today in our world and that's exactly what the Israelites were facing. The Israelites here in Genesis did not know who they are or what they had become. That's the sole reason why Moses wrote Genesis. You have to remember the reason Genesis was written is because you had the Israelites who were in captivity in Egypt for 400 years. They lost, con they lost all perspective on who they were. They had lost all perspective on their destiny. They had lost all perspective on who their God was and who they were and that what they were called to do. They had lost all perspective on life. They didn't know who they were or what they were called to do. And that's why Moses wrote Genesis to a group of people that were enslaved for 400 years. They didn't know who their God was. They didn't know where they came from. They didn't know their story. 
And so God inspired Moses to write the book of Genesis to remind his people that you belong to God, that you have a story, that there is only one true God, and that you here in Genesis chapter 1 were made by this God, and most importantly, you were made in his image. And that's what I want us to look, like, look at this morning. You are made in the image of God. Because when, that, when we begin to understand that, that is powerful and has the power to change your life. So I want us to look at three things concerning the image of God this morning. The first is this, the importance or the significance of the image of God. Who cares? Why is it important? Why is it important for us to understand that we are created in the image of God? What difference does it make? Well, it makes all the difference in the world because it is the very thing that gives you ultimate value and worth. Let me be audacious enough to say that the reality that you are created in the image of God is the only thing that will give you the ultimate worth and value that you long for. You see, every single person in this room is wrestling at some level to find their self-image, to improve on their self-image, to improve on their identity, to improve on that answer when you're called to the next small group, to give that answer that just wows everyone because we are consumed with having an incredible self-image. That's why we look under every rock and behind every tree to find that image that will give us the value and the worth and the significance that we long for. And what this reality does here in Genesis chapter 1, this idea that we are created in the image of God, is it says, how valuable are you? How worthy are you? Where do you find your significance? You find your significance in the one who has created you and creates you in his own image and likeness. I talked about this before, but in the Greco-Roman world 2,000 years ago, people had no worth or value. Only the emperor had worth and value and dignity. But it was in the Greco-Roman world 2,000 years ago, and I've mentioned this on occasion, that abortion and infanticide were widespread, widows were neglected, the homeless were left out to starve. But what changed? What changed 2,000 years ago? It was the Christians. It was the Christians that entered into the culture and into the Greco-Roman world and said, no, we are people that are created in the image of God. And babies will not be slaughtered. And infanticide will not happen on our watch. Widows will not be neglected. They will be taken into our homes and loved for and cared for. The homeless will not go without a meal. Not on our watch. That's not how it works in the kingdom of God. Why? Because we understand that we have been created in the very image of God. It changed the world forever. The image of God, why is it important? It's because why, it's where we find our ultimate self-worth and value. You matter this morning because you were created in the image of God. In Genesis chapter 9, when God talks about holding people accountable for death, he doesn't just say, I will hold you accountable in Genesis chapter 9 because it's wrong. He says, I will hold you accountable because they have been created. Human beings have been created in the very image of God. They are made in my image. Therefore, injustice cannot be brought against another human being. People cannot just be slaughtered for no reason. Lives 
Life in the Bible, beginning with Genesis chapter 1, life is sacred, life is worthy, life is valuable. It's actually where we get the very basis of all social justice, whether it is abortion, or caring for the elderly, or racial reconciliation, or homelessness, or children sold into slavery. The very basis of our social justice and civil rights comes from the reality that we all are all are created in the image of God. There's a man by the name of Brian Tierney. He's not a Christian, but he's a medieval scholar at the Cornell University. And it's ironic, he's not a Christian because he says that all civil rights, all social rights, all social justice, all human rights, all stem from the doctrine of the image of God. This is a non-Christian, Brian Tierney. Look him up. He's a medieval scholar. And he says it was the doctrine of the image of God that was brought into the educational systems. It was brought into the governments. And where was it brought from? It was brought from the church. And he said if it wasn't for the Christians helping us to understand that all people are created in the image of God, we wouldn't have what we have today in the area of civil rights and social justice. All civil rights, all human rights ultimately stem from this reality that we are created in the image of God. It changed the Western world. Martin Luther King Jr., he didn't ground his civil rights movement in common sense. There's actually a famous sermon that Martin Luther King Jr. preached. It was called the American Dream, not the I Have the Dream speech. It was the American Dream sermon that he preached while he was a pastor. And you know what passage he used? Genesis chapter 1, that we are all created in the image of God. All created in the image of God. Why does this matter? Because when a society or a culture loses the reality and the truth that we are created in the image of God, that society has nothing to stand on. That society cannot fight for the rights of other human beings. Therefore, when I stand up here every Sunday and I say, the church is the only answer, I am not just saying that because I'm the pastor of this church. The reason I say the church is the only answer is because the church is the only one that has the ability to preach that all people are created in the image of God. Therefore, that from the reality that all people are created in the image of God, all civil rights and all human rights will come from there. And a society that takes away the reality that man is created in the image of God is a society that can only base rights on reason and rationalization. And so my question for you this morning, if a society does not believe in the image of God, how in the world could it protect unborn babies? How could it protect born babies? How could it protect the elderly? How could it protect the least of these in our society? The church's doctrine of the image of God has to translate into a church that loves all people, a church that fights for the dignity and rights of all people, because that's where we find ourselves, our ultimate worth and beauty and significance. Listen to me this morning. We will never be able to find worth and beauty in the person sitting to the left or right of us if we do not find our worth and beauty from God. When we begin to find our significance and our value and our worth in the very God that has created us, only then will we be able to look to the person on our left and right and say, I love you. You are valued. You are worthy. I find my worth 
in the, in the reality that I've been created in the image of God, I find your worth and value that you have been made and created in the image of God. So why is the image of God significant? It's because it's where we find our ultimate worth and value. Secondly, the image of God not only tells us where we find our worth and value, but it also gives us purpose. You see, the reality here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, that God creates us in his image and after our likeness, it, he likens us to a, a reflection. He, he, he likens us to a mirror. A mirror that does what? That reflects his glory, that reflects his beauty, that reflects his goodness. And, and what he's trying to say here, God, that not only have I created you, but because I've created you in my image and likeness, you are to reflect me wherever you go. Reflect the glory of God. Reflect the beauty. Reflect the glory. Reflect the majesty. And these three words are so important here. It gives us our mission and our purpose as a church. Multiply subdue and have dominion let me just stop there because they are loaded words especially this idea of subdue and dominion the idea of subduing the earth and having dominion over the earth are actually military terms and they come across as very very strong and they're strong for a reason what God wanted us to understand when he created us in his image and his likeness and told us to multiply and to subdue the earth and have dominion over the earth, he basically was saying this, keep on filling my world with my glory. Fill the world with my glory. Fill the world with my goodness. Fill the world with my beauty. The idea of subduing something simply means to put it under submission. And the idea of having dominion over something means to rule. So how in the world are we called to, ha to subdue the earth and have dominion over the earth? It's interesting when we, when we uh, see in the Bible this idea of sub uh, subduing and having dominion, we don't have to look too far. Actually, in, it's all throughout the Bible. In particular, when Solomon is anointed king in Psalm 72, this is what it says. Psalm 72, the anointing of and coronation of King Solomon, it says, may he have dominion, may he rule from sea to sea, may he, and this is how he, God wants Solomon to rule. How does Solomon have dominion? He says, I want you, the poor, to know that they have a helper. He needs to have pity on the weak and the needy, and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their lives, and precious is their blood in his sight. That is how we are supposed to have dominion on the earth. That we subdue the earth and have dominion on the earth by pressing back on evil, by pressing back on darkness. To do it in such a way that we subdue the earth and have dominion over the earth because we reflect the glory of God so that this happens. So that the weak are strengthened, and the sick are healed, and the injured are bound up, and the strayed are brought back, and the lost are sought and found. That is our purpose, created in the image of God. It answers life's biggest question. Not only who are you created in the image of likeness of God, but what am I called to do? We are called to be his image everywhere. You see, they would have been very used to this because they were used to emperors and kings that would do what? 
They would put their image everywhere. The role of the emperor was to put his image all over the conquered land. Why? Because they always wanted the, their people and their subjects to be reminded who was boss, who was in charge. And you know what God does? He says, I'm not going to put my statue everywhere. He says, I am going to create human beings in my image, and I am going to spread them as far <laughs> to the far corners of the earth. I am going to spread them and multiply and fill this earth in such a way that my glory is seen everywhere. That is our purpose, the flourishing of our world, the flourishing of our earth, pushing back on darkness and evil and oppression, all for the glory of God. How amazing is that? How amazing is that this morning for the stay-at-home mom that wakes up every morning and goes, I don't know what my purpose is in life. I feed kids and change diapers. No, no, no. No, no, no. No, if you are in Christ this morning, your purpose is to subdue the earth and have dominion over the earth, to spread the glory of God where, wherever you are and whatever you've been called to do. How about the small business owner that goes, the only thing I need to worry about today is just the bottom line. No. For the small business owner, the entrepreneur who is in Christ, your primary calling in life is to subdue the earth and have dominion over the earth so that the world might see the beauty and the glory of God. The counselor, the teacher, the writer, the retiree, the widow. Do you know how amazing this is? The person that finds themselves living on the streets today. Think about how much value and significance this gives you. For those that understand they've been created in, in the image of God, there is not one single person in here that can leave this morning saying, I have no purpose in life. Your purpose is to reflect the glory and the beauty and the splendor of God. It's amazing. But what's the problem? The doctrine of the image of God tells us on the one hand, this is where we can find our ultimate worth and value and, 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 value and significance in life. On the other hand, the doctrine of the image of God tells us that we do have purpose. We have a calling. We are to be people on mission. If the question then for us this morning, if that is how God has created us, to find our ultimate worth and value in him and to have a purpose that goes out to fill this world with his glory, then why, why don't we do it? If we've been created like this, then why, is it, why does it not come so natural for us? Why are we living in our lives struggling to find meaning, struggling to find our value, doing everything possible to make something for ourselves, to make a name for ourselves, to find worth and value? Why are we such a restless people? That there's no job, there's no person, there's no amount of money, there's, no, there's, there's not a vacation, there's nothing in life that ultimately satisfies us, that gives us ultimate purpose and meaning and value. If God's created us this way, then what's the problem? The problem is these images are broken. You don't have to watch the news or read the newspaper too long to be reminded that we live in a broken world. And the broken world, and in this broken world, it is filled with broken images. You see, everybody here this morning, although you've been created in the image of God, you are a broken image. 
And when we go out into the streets this morning, you're going to encounter more broken images. When the person cuts you off on your way to the restaurant for lunch, be reminded you're driving next to broken people. And when you and your spouse get in a fight on the way home, remember, you're married to a broken image. And when your kids lose it, when you finally get home and they have a meltdown, remember that they too are nothing more than a broken image. So what's the answer? The answer is Jesus. You see, what Jesus does because of Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of humanity and the reason that we go out and don't bring the glory of God forth and the reason we don't bring life but actually bring death is because we need Jesus. You see, who was Jesus? Jesus was the perfect image of God, the only perfect representation of his glory, and he becomes our substitute. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Verse 15 through 18. 2 Corinthians 3. It says, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Stop right there. You can go back. That's what I look like? Oh, man. Um, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, let me stop right there. So whenever Moses is read, that simply means the law. Whenever the law is read, a veil lies over their hearts. You can keep going. But when one turns to the Lord, when, when that person makes a conscious decision to follow Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, and they look to him for worth, and they look to him for life, what happens? The veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and when the Spirit of the Lord is, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Leave that passage up there. Leave that passage up there, because this is a big verse. Because this verse answers the problem of life. When we are running around scrambling to find our worth and value in everything under the sun, when we are scrambling to find answers and solutions for everything we watch on the news, particularly the last two weeks, when we are looking to find what's the answer and the solution to all of the brokenness in our, in our families, in our homes, in our churches, in our communities, in our nation, throughout our world, this one verse gives us the answer. And you go, how in the world? Does this one verse give us the answer? Remember it said previously that when they used to read the word, Moses, the law, it was done with blinders on. A veil was covering their face. What was covering their face? The glory of God, the beauty of God. But what has happened now? Those that turn to Jesus, when one turns to Jesus and sees him as the only answer for life, the only answer for finding significance, the only answer for finding my worth and value and purpose in life, what begins to happen? We now with unveiled face, the blinders come off of our face, of our eyes, of our hearts. When we turn to Jesus, the only answer for getting us back to the garden and reversing this curse of a broken image what happens we behold the glory of the lord and we are transformed 
into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Behold, behold the glory. What does it mean to behold something? It means to look at something in such a way that you are captured by it. It's not just looking out into the crowd like I'm doing right now. It means to lock your eyes on something and gaze upon it and be gripped by it in such a way that you can no longer look to the left or to the right. There's only one answer now for my life that we begin to behold the glory of God. And when we behold the glory of the Lord, which is Jesus Christ, we are being transformed. What exactly are we beholding? What is the glory of the Lord? The glory is when God is revealed. Adam shared with us last week, when is God best revealed? Through the person of Christ. And what was it that Christ did? Christ took on our broken image. Was it not Jesus that became poor? Was it not Jesus who was tortured? Was it not Jesus who was almost threatened at birth with infanticide? Was it not Jesus who was a victim of injustice? Was it not Jesus who was executed by another race? And was it not Jesus who was abandoned by his own race? Wasn't it Jesus who for our sake took on our broken image? So why? So that we could have the perfect image of God. That is good news this morning. And what Paul is trying to say in 2 Corinthians is that when we look on that image, the image of the one who gave up his image for us and gave us the perfect image of God and took on our broken image, when we look at that picture of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ, it says our lives begin to be transformed. Our lives are transformed forever. I see a love that has the capacity to heal my broken image. Jesus conformed to our image so that we might be conformed into the image and likeness of God. And I ask you this morning to gaze, to gaze and behold the beauty of Christ that transforms you. So that now, so that now I can answer the call of the one who took on my image and perfectly fulfilled this idea of subduing the earth and having dominion over the earth so that when we go out from this place this morning, we can look at the world boldly and say, this is not your world. This is my father's world. And we will press against evil and we will press against darkness and we will press as a church against injustice and oppression because there is a one who has come to conquer sin and death and evil once and for all who reigns and subdues perfectly and has dominion over the earth forever. And that is who we go in the name of the one that defeated sin and death once and for all. Let me close with this. Is the image of God important? You betcha. Does it give us purpose? The greatest purpose in the world. And Jesus is the only one that can restore that broken image in your life and in the life of the millions and millions of people on the face of this earth. But you know what makes the restoration of the image of God through Jesus so special? What does he restore us into? 
He doesn't just simply restore us into the image of God. What is the image? It's the image of the Son. It's the image of Jesus Christ. You see, this morning, if you know Jesus and the image of God is restored in your life, here's the good news, that you are not just simply restored into the image of God. You are not just restored into his image and likeness. You are restored this morning into the image of likeness of the beloved son of God, Jesus Christ himself, so that when God looks down on you because of the good news, he sees Jesus. What it means, it means you can have a father. Can I tell you how many people I have talked to, how many people inside and outside of this church, if they say, if I only had a father, my life would look so different. You see, the miracle of the good news this morning is that through Jesus Christ, your image is not only restored, you are restored into the very image and likeness of Jesus Christ the beloved Son of God. I read this letter. It was a girl by the name of Chelsea. She was adopted when she was only three months old from Romania. And on Father's Day a couple years ago, she wrote this letter to her father in honor of Father's Day. And it says this to her adopted father. A lot of people ask if I'm interested in meeting my real dad. What they mean is, do you want to meet your biological dad? Daddy, they just don't seem to get it, do they? You're the one that traveled across the world to search me out. You're the one that gave up a comfortable life in order to give me life. You're the one who rescued me. I was an orphan, and you chose to call me your own. I was fatherless, and you chose to be my father. But most important, you chose to love me. You chose to love me the day you saw me and said, that girl is mine, she's my little girl now, and you've chosen to love me every day since. I know that many times I've been, I haven't been lovable, but I'm your daughter, so you have committed to loving me well, even though I don't deserve it. You have a father. You see, the good news for those that know Jesus this morning is that brokenness can be undone. That you can have a father. So that when people ask you this morning, who are you? You can say, I'm a child of God. Who are you? I am a son or a daughter of the king.